There's a company called Spin Launch that is starting to launch rockets into space by whipping them around an arm for an hour and getting them up to several times the speed of sound and then just yeeting them into the upper atmosphere. This sounds like okay. a, like goblin engineering. I love it. This, for it. Yeah. So look that up too because that you know this it's is a real important thing to know. Wait. It's like both dumb and it's basically a space trip. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 337 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm a complex state machine. I'm Sam and I'm the artiste. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is November 11, 2021. Dunk on everyone. Before we get started, do you have a warning is going to be? Is it November 11? Because is everyone just kind of... Uh, drunk at this point from the years. It's just, just a daylight savings. So you know, you we're so all tired, tired now. Mm. It's dark. It's November. November. Who, who even cares what day up. it is? It's yep. not day. There's. It's not a day. It's. It's night it's now. Night. It's mm-hmm. always night. It's not a day. It's a vibe. It's yeah, true. it's a mood, it's a as mood. the youths say. Uh, there's going to be profanity in this show, so if you enjoy that, you know, stick around. Uh, also, <laughs> it's, that's the new warning. It's a, a better warning. Yep. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Uh, we've got a new one, Bam 182, which is an old one also, mm-hmm. um, uh, who left a message that just says you, which point. is cryptic. And uh, which one of us, though? You know? Or I think he's trying to start us? a feud. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you have a with that. He didn't say uh-huh. y'all, but you also does work in a plural sense, you know. It's referring to the group as a subject, which is yeah. interesting. It also can refer to any, like, uh, just a single person, but generically, so that it becomes plural-ish while actually being singular, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't think so, because now that now that y'all exists and is known, I think you has to be singular. No, but the problem you know? is, is that we were all taught as Midwesterners, you know, who were supposed to hate Southerners. And well, well I mean, anybody who's not, wherever you are, you're supposed to, you're raised to hate everybody you're else. You're supposed that's, to hate everybody policy, else right? from everywhere else. So we yeah. were taught, you don't, you don't say ain't and you don't say y'all because those are bad grammar, which is horseshit nonsense. Because somebody made it, somebody invented grammar at yeah. some point. Yeah. Somebody decided uh, we could just also just decide again. Mm-hmm. Just keep deciding. You can just things. keep. Well, in fact, it's not that you can. It's that that's just what has happened. That's just what happens. You know, that's that's what. Yeah, that's how it happens. Works. And you and you either you know you get on board or you get yeeted exactly. out the door. That's get exactly what I was gonna say. It's <laughs> freaking me out. I literally was All like, right. I need to somehow weave yeet into this. Oh yeah, mm-hmm, to uh, connect with the children. Otherwise, you won't pass the vibe check, which is you know. Mm. Nope. Vibe check. Yep. All right. We'd like to also thank our recurring supporters. <laughs> uh, thank you for the recurring donations. All right. Now, before we talk about some sort of like cool studio work stuff, I do have one thing I want to mention. What? Mm-hmm. what you got? James, James Webb Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. It's coming. It's launching. Do you guys know about this fucking thing? It's, it's claim is it's supposed to be able to see to the beginning of time. I think is, you can yeah. see inside your soul. It will be so. It it is has much better infrared detection equipment than the Hubble. So the way you think about this is like infrared waves are long. They're like the base of mm. waves, right? Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. when somebody when somebody drives past your house and they're thumping the base, you don't hear all the treble bullshit, but you feel the mm. 
You feel the base, yeah, it's right? The same and way so we're like, like if if there's microwaves out in the world, they're just go, they're in you. They're just going. They're going in through you. you. Yep. Yeah. So these planets yeah. out there deep in space are just slapping the base, and this yeah, James Webb is a base enthusiast. It's a base yeah. Now enthusiast, people yeah. say mm-hmm. that that the Big Bang was the first bop of all time. Would, would it be the first drop though? I feel like it was the first bass drop. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't time. though because time didn't exist before that, so there wasn't because the bass drop has to. There has to be a waiting period, you know, where you're like getting ready for it, right? But oh, but there wasn't even waiting. There wasn't waiting because the waiting no couldn't time. exist because time didn't exist, you know. So right, uh, right, and also, and also, since it was the first thing that happened, but since time didn't exist before it, then it can't have been the first thing that happened because when it happened, time didn't exist. You know, yeah. or, so, or it did, but only in that moment. You know. So. so the cool thing about this then is that this new telescope. Okay, so for starters, they're going to. So the Hubble orbits the Earth. Okay, mm-hmm. the you know we all know and love the Hubble Space Telescope. The James Webb Telescope doesn't give a fuck about that. They're going to launch this thing. It's going to fly for a month, and it's going to be anchored to something called a Lagrange point mm-hmm. out beyond the moon. Okay. Huh. A Lagrange point is basically a gravitational pocket that allows things to kind of like sit in space, sit in place without without having to orbit, without having to oh, orbit, right? That's the thing. Yeah. that's the thing, right? Yeah, it's where it's where basically the gravity of multiple different bodies kind of create like a steady state, a, like an like an additional like gravitational well in the middle of nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're gonna plunk this thing just like way out there. A month out into space beyond the moon, so that it's it can also and it also has a giant sun blocker on it. Mm-hmm. So basically, he's wearing it. It's basically a giant sombrero. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's still Within orbiting. A, I mean, it's still orbiting the sun with the Earth Moon with you know, us combo, right? But, yeah, but now it's, it's just not it's flinging itself around the Earth at a you know jillion miles per hour. So it's easier for it to like look at a spot without being like, oh no, I'm just moving spinning. all over the place. Oh shit, the Earth's yeah. in the way now. You know, like it doesn't have to. Yeah. Do that. So yeah, so light so light pollution from stuff reflecting off of the Earth not a problem, right? Because it's just much farther away. Um, it has this giant sombrero, which is great, and its instruments are a hundred times more powerful than the Hubble, and it can detect stuff that the Hubble can't detect. So, for starters, we're going to get some truly fucking and like dope, pictures truly incredible pictures from this. I because say, think yeah. about, yeah, think about what we start, started seeing when the Hubble was launched. Everybody's like, "Oh my god!" I remember at one point somebody just like pointed the Hubble just at a like a, just a random location, and they were like, "We found like a hundred thousand galaxies." <laughs> yeah, just like there. That one just inch. right there, yeah. and then it turns out everywhere you point it, there's a hundred thousand galaxies. Yeah. You know, space is big, um, and, we, and we were limited yes. by the resolution, right? Because like, because you're you're seeing because like because it's a big ass pictures that come out of Hubble, right? Like huge, huge yeah. pictures, right? And every pixel, you know, is, is a whole galaxy. Is, can have like galaxies <laughs> in it, right? And so, with, a, with billions of stars. Yeah. In so it. if you get some higher resolution, then you could take that what was one pixel, maybe make it like a you know a thousand or. Even yeah. ten, I don't know. I don't know how much bigger it is, but but now all of a sudden, like we have ten x more resolution on that one pixel that was a thousand galaxies, and now maybe we can see ten thousand individual galaxies instead of just the yeah. one. They might be thinking, right spot. How do you see? How do you see the beginning of time with something like this? Well, the beginning of time is already a, here. That's how. Yeah. The so light has a fixed speed, right? And so if you look at something that's far enough away, then you're looking in into the past, right? Mm-hmm. So. So if you are able to 
to have such fine resolution images and can detect stuff at such a fine level of detail, then you will be able to see things that were that happened 13 billion years ago. Okay. But you have to point at the right spot, right? No, you can, exactly. point, you can point anywhere. Well, yeah, any, anywhere you point, if you're looking far enough away, whatever whatever you're looking at was 13 also, billion years ago. But also, there's no such thing as looking far away. This is something that we kind of like feel like is true because of our limited resolution of our eyes and the fact that we see with two eyeballs that overlap to make a 3D picture, right? But yeah. what, what actually happens, though, is just light's just – all light is just hitting you in the eyeballs. That's what's happening, right? And the light's coming from everywhere and – Yep. Because of the lenses in your eyes and how they focus things, then you end up with taking the light, depending on how it's coming in and hitting you, right? And you can like map it onto this color space, right? Inside of your eyes, like as this kind of flat thing. But what that flat thing comes from is just, it's just light hitting your eyeballs, right? So there's nothing, it's a flat thing that's happening. And then your brain computes what that means about like, okay, well that must be that far away and, and whatever, right? But like if my eyeballs in space... If your I can't see in 13 space, billion years in the past. Yeah, you actually just can't. Your, like you're just because your eye is because the question is where is the light enough. coming from? That's the only question, right? And yeah, and on and on Earth, like most of the light that is coming from somewhere is stuff that is like you can literally see because it's your eyes have yeah, sufficient right resolution, there. right? But if you are if you have more resolution, right? Then because of course as you get as you get further and further and further away, there's more uh, sort of uh, what more a larger plane from which light is coming, right? It's a whole, like, you look out through a cone, and if you're really close, then there's it's not very wide, and it keeps getting wider and wider and wider. Mm-hmm. So as it keeps getting wider, it's a bigger and bigger space from which light is coming, right? And that mm-hmm. and that really, then that ever-growing space is still getting mapped onto the same resolution on your eyeballs, which is why things appear to get smaller and smaller and smaller as you go away. Right. That kind of makes sense? Right. So, yeah. so when you're yeah, out I'm in with space, you. I'm with you. When you're out in space, there just is shit that's been out, like, that's 14 billion light years away from which light has now been traveling for 14 billion years. And it just keeps traveling. It's just traveling the whole time, right? So wherever something is in distance away, then we're, we're still being hit with its light constantly. We just always are, right? As long as that th- right. our distance so maybe- from it is older than it takes light to travel that far. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Uh, no yeah. one's can hit with it constantly. So like when you look outside, you're always seeing 14 billion year old light. We are right now. But it's just that your eyes have such this like wide field of view and their resolution is too low that they're only able to handle stuff real close. Stuff real close. Yeah. So that light's still hitting us though. That like that 14 billion light is still hitting us in the eyeball. But it's just mixed in with uh, with way more light that's hitting you from like right bouncing off all the shit around you. By a very important question, which is can an eagle see into the past? That's the only question I have. The only well the only direction anyone can see is into the past. (laughs) (laughs) You also can only hear into the past, right? Like like when when uh, when you hear thunder, that's you listening to lightning that happened a while ago, right? You yeah. So if someone you says can, you, can, you need to quit concept. living in the past, what you know? Well, your, the weird your only thing answer is, is that's the only place to live. Mm, Although yeah. that's not actually true, though, because your sensory inputs came from the past and they get processed in the past, right? But your computational processing that your brain is doing to have like. Yeah, consciousness or whatever is happening right now and also in the past, right? But like, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing process. So you can only actually live in the present. That's the only possibility. But you're living your your present life always based on the past. Based on with, some, with some lag, basically. Some you lag, got some yeah. input lag. Yeah. 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 And if somebody tells you stop living in the past, by the time you hear it, they've already said it in, in the past anyway. So yep. it's really hard to, to kind of 
deal with, I think, emotionally. <laughs> those kinds of those kinds of attacks. Yep. yep. Uh, so, anyways, James Webb Space Telescope, fucking awesome. Definitely read about it. Uh, and then I have one last thing. I'm just going to say exists. Then we're going to move on. There's a company called Spin Launch that is starting to launch rockets into space by whipping them around an arm for an hour and getting them up to several times the speed of sound and then just yeeting them into the upper atmosphere. This sounds like okay. a, like goblin engineering. I love here this, for it. Yeah. So look that up too because you know this it's a real important thing to know. Wait. It's like both dumb and it's basically a space trip. <laughs> you could have put a person in there though. No, this is a no. This is a no, yeah. <laughs> no. No, the G-forces of like whipping around this hundred meter long arm for an hour as you get like to Mach 10. Now, this thing would work great on the moon too, because like they have to do it in a vacuum container. Yeah, I was going to say they have to play it. Yeah, right. And so then the the rocket actually punches through a sealed membrane when they launch it out of this tube because there has to be in a vacuum. Yes, they have to fix the membrane afterwards. Yeah, but like on the moon, this would be an amazing way to launch stuff. Oh yeah, you know, there's because like once it punches through the membrane, suddenly it just like immediately catches on fire because <laughs> you know, because you know it's going really All fast. Right. What is this called? Spin launch. Spin launch. Why don't they just I call it? Why don't they just call it the Great Yeater? You know? The Great the, Yeet. The Great Yeet. Uh, there's a problem. That's with good. This, though, Space which is the yeet. moment. The moment we put one of those fuckers on the moon, someone's going to eat something right onto the planet on accident or on purpose. doesn't even matter. It's going to get eaten right onto the planet. And like, that's the whole like a thing going at like Mach 10, you know, like from the moon falling down the gravity well into earth. Although we could probably get it a lot faster than that even because you're not like there's, there's no barriers or whatever. Yeah. It's just in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Like that's probably. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is this, you know, no, no spoilers, but if you haven't seen The Expanse. Yeah, this is basically I mean, how the, the world ends, you know. This, this is how bad, some bad shit goes down in The Expanse. People yeeting things at the earth. Don't, don't do it. Don't eat things okay? at earth. But right now we're just eating things from the earth. Yeah, so, you know, safer. nothing bad could possibly happen <laughs> from this. Uh, anyways, all right, let's talk about some studio stuff. We have yeah. some interesting things. Uh, first, Sam will talk about key combiner. Yeah. So, you know, I've talked a lot about what is it? Key binds, hot keys, those hot, hot keys. Uh, yeah. You know, mice? Nah, get those out of here. No, no, no. Unless hot keys. You're using hot keys with your mouse. Yeah, like the side buttons and shit. Uh, so, the reason we talk a lot about uh, process improvement, about productivity, et cetera, for our long term listeners is that we know that, you know, DevOps is the thing that we're very interested in improving. The flow of things through the studio as a system to produce good game content delivered to people is kind of what we're all about. And a big part of that is, you know, efficiencies on everything from, you know, building of the games with automations and things like that, all the way down to the actual task level work, which oftentimes can be sped up by hotkeys. So in the past, I've talked a lot about my hotkeys uh, with regard to Inkscape. I haven't talked about them too much, I think, with Clip Studio Paint. But uh, Clip Studio Paint allows you to bind just basically everything. It has a few rules that are kind of annoying, but but not too many. Um, and you can really just bind like whatever you want to basically whatever you want. And then it also has these weird modifier keys that while you're using a particular tool, if while you're using that tool, you press a certain button, then it changes to a different thing while you're holding that button. All sorts of fun stuff. But there's this, this rather large problem that uh, came up with this, which is this expansive new field of opportunities that I was given with Clip Studio uh, led to essentially a visibility problem 
on, which again, if you're familiar with DevOps, the idea is that if you can't see what kind of work is being done or can't like basically don't have a visual representation for uh, the way that work flows through a system, then you actually don't know, you just don't know what the hell's going on. The most important Think rule of- for all of for all of this is make it visible. Yes. And it's probably worth saying too that if you can't see it, it's definitely broken. Yeah. In some way. <laughs> And usually you can feel it a little bit, but you can't always necessarily tell. So what's interesting about this You don't really know is, how, how messed up it is. It's very messed up. Yeah. What I find fascinating about this is that whenever you go do hockey stuff in any program, um, the way that they show you it is just in a list, which if you think about it, is very dumb because uh, once you get into like having, I don't know, maybe more than a dozen hotkeys, the reality is like uh, not being able to see how it actually maps onto a keyboard is yep. uh, kind of troublesome because you can't, especially as you start slicing these things into a variety of menus, uh, maybe into a variety of subcategories, you only see a subset at a time, et cetera. So this is also true with things like uh, like code IDEs, like VS Code or like yes. these things. Like if you ever, anybody who uses one of those, if you, if you haven't, go look into your hotkey section, wherever it is, and you will be horrified at the sheer number. And, and, it's, and also, Sam, Sam, yeah, it's like what Sam's talking about. Depending on what's open and like what you're currently doing, the behavior of the hotkeys also changes. So it's, yes. it's wild. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about the key rebinding interface that I made in our games, which is a list. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the weird thing, though, the list, the list works very well with a when you have a more constrained set. It's really only a problem once you get into like literally having, you know, 30 plus hotkeys. I think it's still the same concept context, though. Yeah. Cause like, cause, cause it's the same idea, which is that as your context changes, you basically need this like dynamic rebinding to be happening yes. so that things mean stuff. And like, and it's really like to Seth's point, like it's really hard to do that even when like your number of actions you can take is very tightly constrained. Yes. It's yeah. also extremely difficult. Yeah. So basically what I, what I found then was that uh, we've been undergoing a few of these, of these process changes, which we'll get into after this, but uh, the basic one on my side is okay. Let's see how I, how much faster I can go by uh, revisiting some of these hotkeys because I'd, I'd had the sense for a while that they were I had put a bunch of them in there, but of course I can't see the damn things. Uh, and so you know you might have a good idea like oh you know I'll, I'll put, set this one up here, set this one up here, and so you, what you end up with is this sort of ad hoc system that doesn't allow for any intuitive level of like there's no linkages necessarily between concepts that are hotkeyed. So things like uh, people like cut and paste, right? It's control C, control V. Why? Because they're right next to each other, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's very frequently easy. used and it's like frequently used. Program. Yep. So, but then you have other stuff like uh, in a lot of programs, you know, control A is for selecting everything. Uh, and then, or, or you know, control Z is for undo, right? Uh, control shift Z is to undo your undo, right? To redo. Or control Y in some yep. cases. Or control Y, <laughs> sometimes for some fucking reason, right? So that it's like- stands for which, yo no. I think exactly. Yeah. You know why would you do this? And so there's there's a lot of ways to do this, but there's not a lot of them are actually they're not very well conceptually linked, such that you could know one key and then infer kind of related keys to it. So well, I think a good example too where this comes into conflict is like for me because I mostly spend time in VS Code, wherein Control P is open up the little thingy just to find a file, which I use fucking constantly, right? But everywhere else, control P is please print this thing, right? Yeah, so because also when I move between it, things, it's a nightmare. Yes, like why and why is it control P? How does that have mm-hmm. any bearing? I don't know why, you know. Um, yep. And so a lot of times you'll do these things because uh, just in the, they're sort of slowly being built. They're not really like designed as a whole because you can't see the thing as a whole to design it in the first place. So this uh, is a long-winded way of saying that there's this program um, that I started using called 
key combiner, which actually does allow you then to see the keyboard and see basically how you, what your load is on all these different keys. Uh, you know, how many are on like the S key or the A key, or then you can hit like control on the keyboard that's visible up there. Uh, do you have to and then see all these modifiers. Like, put them all in there, or how does that? That's the thing. So you do have to manually plonk them in. Uh, it does have ones, it has like lists that you can pull that are kind of already existing uh, from a variety of different places. Mm -hmm. um, but then you, you basically have to manually put them in. And it's not like this is a manager for your hotkey. It's like a cross. It's not like you can, it's I can't like visualizer. You can, yeah, you can export them, but of course they're not in the appropriate format for most things. So, cause everyone, everyone does this slightly differently. So uh, there is basically that level of kind of annoyance in terms of setup and stuff. But what this uh, allowed me to see was I, I plonked all these things in, got like 140 hotkeys just in Clip Studio yep. Paint. Uh, the vast majority of them are just bound up on my left hand, which is the intent. Um, but comically, you know, when I say that, it's like, okay, you, you look at just the left half of the keyboard, basically from, from the number six down to B and left. And like those are the keys that I use to do everything, which doesn't seem like it's enough to fit 140 things on, which is why it's even more horrifying that once I put this in, I realized that I have like five letters that I basically never loaded stuff onto. So there's Q, <laughs> W, S, A, and R and T actually all like some of the easiest ones to hit. You don't even have any. And I, this whole time I've been like, I need more buttons. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you have enough buttons. They were so you're just being right, dumb. They were inside the whole time, yeah. especially when it's Whatever. combinatorial because you can then mix them together and add the controls yeah. and shifts and alts and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, I'm working on this sort of large remap of not just Clip Studio Paint, but then also of Spine pushing these things together so that conceptually, as you move between the programs, then it's kind of like you're. The buttons that you press in one program are kind of the same buttons you press in the other one for the same reasons. So, uh, yeah, very very fun to work on. Uh, I highly recommend anybody who does a lot of hotkeying stuff to check it out because it's as much as it has that annoying level of setup time on it. Um, since you can't really automate plonking stuff in, uh, it's great. Very. I think I think that hotkeys are really interesting usability sort of thing because they simultaneously highlight uh, good UX and bad UX. Right, and also mm -hmm. how those things are limited and shaped by context, because because of the fact that there are so many hotkeys that like the operating system uses, which also can vary by operating system, right, mm -hmm. and that are already used by default for things like Control Z for Undo, right, in so many contexts. Or I think app, you know, on Apple, it's Option Z or whatever. Um, so because you have these things, you're kind of always working around these sort yes. of arbitrary constraints, and then you're now working around the physical reality. Uh, of a person having their hand on a keyboard mm -hmm. and then the reality of what that keyboard means, but also keyboard layouts are different depending on uh, language, right? So if I, I know the first time I was in, in Europe using a keyboard, which was a long time ago, I went to go like into a computer cafe or something to go send an email. And I was like, Oh no, like I didn't have, <laughs> cause it was a, it was a, what was it? It was like a, a different layout, French yeah. keyboard or something. I can't remember. But yeah, but like this, like the A and something else were like flipped into different places. And so, so a keyboard isn't a keyboard, right? And then like you're working around these things. And so now when you're coming in as a person trying to figure out, all right, I want to make it easier for somebody to do work in this system. So you start creating hockeys. And this is the same problem for games with inputs. Same, exactly the same problem, right? And so you're like, okay, here's my constraints. Here's how many keys I have. Uh, not everybody actually has all these keys, depending on if they're on a laptop, they might not have certain buttons. And so how do I make the things that really need to be the most accessible accessible without overloading things too much? And while trying to know about as many existing patterns already mm -hmm. out there so I can kind of help people out by mirroring those. But one of the things that's because once you take all those constraints into account, 
One of the things that becomes the constraint you actually don't even get to think about is actually where your fingers are, right? Yeah. Because by the time you get there, you don't have any options. And so it's just like, okay, yep. well, whatever fucking key is left, right? Control so, P. Yeah, so now you're doing this control <laughs> P stuff, right? Because they correctly were like, there's nowhere to put this. And like, and probably people don't need to print code. But here's the often, thing. You know? I don't know if they if they even knew. Because this is what I'm realizing yeah. is that like I my visual understanding of my layout was that it was that I had no keys left. That was yeah, like uh-huh. literally like this actually got kicked off. I bought a Tartarus, which is this like basically this left-handed insane mini keyboard thing that gamers use that also some professional artists use because it has a scroll wheel on it and a D-pad on it. Um, hmm. And in basically exploring that thing was the place where I realized like, oh, like I, you know, I'm pretty sure if I just think about my keyboard a little bit differently, I could get all the same functionality without having this other stupid device. And it wasn't until this visual mapping that I was able to see where these things were actually loaded. And it's surprising how like, I think the reality is usually that you're just kind of loading up stuff more or less arbitrarily without any ability to tell really like where stuff yeah, is well, unless you can see the damn thing. Yeah, it's, it, all, it is all about mapping. One of the things that I always find hilarious is, so I do a lot of work with people in, uh, in World of Warcraft to help them like improve their gameplay. One of the big things is always key bindings. It's always mm-hmm. hotkeys. So people normally position on the WASD sort of like standard, you know, gaming keyboard hand position, yeah. right? With your hand offset by one for no fucking reason from its normal position. Well, it, well, in an MMO, that makes it very easy to hit shift, control, and alt modifiers yes. for all your keys. So it actually is a pretty good spot. But yeah, but you already uh, can though, right? Like, because you're also you're used to that, like hitting those keys. From well, but, that's also, right. but also tab becomes a lot harder to hit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. which is also a pretty and good one. But that's fine though, because now you got, you know, the I, I don't have keys, yeah, caps, yeah, so I yeah, can't Because you, you could are, rebind like what you were doing with tab onto yeah. Q or something. And now you, you know, just have more space over. on the left to do stuff. So you're not always going yeah. to the right. Yeah. So there's a blind spot there in terms of just like default hand position. But also I would talk to so many people who would say, like, oh, I just like I don't have any more like Sam was like, I don't have any more mm-hmm. buttons available. And then I'm like, have you tried Z, X, and C, which are literally immediately next to your fingers and right mm-hmm. there all the time. And nobody ever thinks of those keys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I because use the they whole can't see them. Yeah. yeah. They can't see them under their hand. And your fingers and have to like move backwards, which is always weird. So you always, you always want to move out. It feels better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So if your hand's on the keyboard, you see like, you know, one, two, three, four above your hand. You're like, well, I guess those are all the keys I have. <laughs> yeah, I, know you mentioned. I think it's what's interesting because actually I, because I load all my tools on the bottom row. So ZXCVB are all my tools, like the ones I use the most because of yeah. course whole, control and shift are also the buttons you hit the most actually along with those bottom row yep. things because of cut cop, so because copy combos yeah. too. And people, people so, think about like control Z, control X, whatever, but people really think about just Z, X, and C, like, and V by themselves yeah. as available hotkeys. <laughs> Adam, to your point about like going up, like, cause yeah, actually, you know, now you're saying that I usually rest my fingers basically on control shift Z, X and space. Mm-hmm. I, I turn my keyboard, I have a broken in half keyboard, so I turn it to the side and then mm-hmm. just kind of go pah, like upward to get yeah. to all my stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's so weird how, how you can, you can have this tool that you've been using your whole life. Like you can type, you know, at hundred words per minute, but like, you know, the full layout of the keyboard by heart, all that stuff. And then when it comes time to doing these mappings, just because of the way that it's conveyed, like you're saying in like just a list a form list. or something like that, 
it's conveyed in a way that actually doesn't allow you to see how those things go onto the keyboard and also what's available on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. So instead, you just do kind of random stuff and feel like you're more constrained. Well, it's, it's also multidimensional, right? Because like as soon as you as soon as you hit as soon as you start holding down control, then, then it's a whole new keyboard. That's it is yeah. literally a new keyboard, <laughs> now, right? And like and what you hit is going to change. And yeah. we don't think about it. And then you, and now you have control and alt at the same time. And then it's another keyboard yet again, right? Uh, so Just don't hit delete. Yes. Right. That's exactly it. It's, it's because you never know for sure what has been bound to something. Because this is the, th this is the problem that I always have when I'm working on keys. So, so a little while ago, I was trying to set up a hotkey for Discord just to mute and unmute. Right. But I wanted it. Mm -hmm. I, got a, I got an MMO mouse and there's a bunch of buttons on it. I was like, okay, I just want to map one of the buttons on here to mute unmute so that I don't have to fuck with that. It's just like, mm -hmm. it's easy. It's my hand's always there. Just tap it with my thumb. Trying to figure out how to do that, like finding an open thing I could do, like a globally that I could like map that because yeah, because it's yeah. global now. Because now it's no matter what app I'm in, that key, hockey has to be the same and not interact with anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so trying to find, and especially in the context of VS Code, which same for Clipsio Paint, you'd have the same problem because there's so many bound hotkeys. Yep. That the the end thing I ended up doing was so you know there's the F1 through F12, right? Did you know that technically it goes up to F24, you know? Yeah. Did you know? There's, there's 12 more invisible magic yeah, yeah. buttons and, that and, no keyboard has. Right. And presumably, like, you can get a keyboard that has them, or you could get, like, you could set it up so, like, maybe, like, some super key or something Shift. plus an F key does it. I don't know. Yeah. But but so I saw that, and I was like, oh, cool. So I could just, like, literally, because I'm, I'm telling my mouse through its software to, like, pretend that that button is whatever button I want, right? And I saw it had F24 there, and I was like, fuck, that's dope. Like, that won't be bad at anything. So I used it, and then it was still bound to something in Discord. Uh -huh. right? so, <laughs> so I had to change it to Shift F24 to actually make it work, right? Or Control or whatever. But, yeah, but that, to me, that's the problem is, like, is that there's this invisible set of actions, yeah. right? That in every, every time, because it's all about like where you're focused, right? So focus is whatever uh, uh, application Windows is currently active. Targeted, right? yep. Yeah, so so every time you move and some new application becomes active, you have some new combination of the operating mm -hmm. system's hotkeys and that application's hotkeys. And every application, depending on what it's doing, can also do more global stuff. Meaning even if you're in somebody else's application, that thing might still do something, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no way for you to just to synthesize this and be like, okay, here's all the shit that's happening. There's no way for you to turn it off and be like, okay, for this set of applications, I want to just like block all these hotkeys or just remap them, right? Like none of this exists. But the, but the real problem here is the constrained thinking we have on that like a button on the keyboard is supposed to do something. Okay. As in like when I push W, that means something, right? Like it's supposed to send a W, right? It's not that it's just some button. This is why the F keys are so magical. Because they don't mean right? anything. Because the F keys don't have any opinion. They're just like, I'm just here hanging out. And if you push me, I'm not like whatever, man. stands for function, right? Just yeah, the function keys. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you can you in different programs or applications you can bind the F keys to stuff. But of course, like having yeah. just totally open and available keys is super useful. So lots of programs already claimed them. Yep. Right. And at no point did we say like, what if we just had you know a lot of these? Like, what if we had more of these available? Why is it only F twenty four? Can't why can't it just keep going? Mm -hmm. A keyboard input is just your keyboard sending a beep. Just sending basically, something. <laughs> it's just, just being like, "Derp, here's a number, computer <laughs> yeah. that got pushed, right?" Well, I think like, the thing too and though, if, is like because of my other issues, Adam mentioned you mentioned like the ergonomics of actually being on a keyboard, which is that mm -hmm. as an artist, you're using actually a pen. You're yep. only using half a keyboard yep. and the pen. So, like Clip Studio has things that interact with the pen, so you can then key stuff to the to the pen essentially. So if I hold yep. Alt and then I put my 
pen on the screen and move it around, it zooms in and out. Yep. I don't need a mouse anymore, right? Mm. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. But the other issue there is like I can't reach the F keys because oh, yeah, when your hand is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my keyboard is sort of like under almost like smooshed by well, the so this tablet drawer. Brings me to the thing that I ordered. Yeah, I was gonna talk about that. Can you do you remember the fucking name of it? Because I it it's slips called my brain so hard. It's called Caracorder. C H C H A R A, like the first part of character, and then quarter like like a record of the C- on No, like, like chords, like C-H-O-R. Because it's like, because its whole thing is chords. As in, instead of thinking of keys as like, oh, shift, whatever. It's like a chord is just a bunch of things pressed at the same time. Yeah. So, worst name of a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's actually, right? it's a great name. It's just, it's It's a great name, but, but the fact that both of the hard K sounds are spelled C-H makes it very hard to convey that, what, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, the caracorder is they it's fucking wild because it is it's a keyboard but it looks like two sort of black uh pucks basically mm-hmm. that have a couple of thumb joysticks and then basically everything is a joystick it's just five joysticks everything's yeah. a joystick because and so like i was watching their video and again like i i hope the folks at Carecorder listen to this because here's the thing i'm incredibly excited about this thing in spite of their marketing <laughs> materials yeah, their marketing videos for sure all their videos uh-huh. are just they just really don't sell this thing uh, very well. But the concept is really interesting, which is they say that you know traditionally keys on a keyboard are one dimensional, meaning you push them and that that's it. Like you push W and you get a W, and you can't do anything else with the W key. So to change that's it, yeah, right? to change the behavior, you basically have to move into a new plane by holding down some other key, holding Shift or something. And so they're like, what if? Like what if uh, what if you just had four directional D pads basically for every for finger. every for every finger? Or I guess one for right? every finger, but yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, I, I think you can click them as well, like a joystick on like a like an mm-hmm. Xbox controller. So basically, you've got like five different inputs on each finger mm-hmm. uh, without having to lift your finger. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you can also do, which is also kind of hilarious, how like for example, your thumb is your is an incredibly versatile finger. Which it's weird to think there's a finger, but it is one. Um, and we always just that use it to wrong. slap the space bar, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, so in the character, your thumb actually has two different joysticks that it can interact with. So it can do space bar, but also it can do like control, alt, you know, shift, whatever. Um, you can have one joystick that's just the up, down, left, right arrows, right? Mm-hmm. Which on a normal keyboard are in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> um, right? And so, so the idea then is for starters, um, you're, hands never really, your fingertips never really leave contact with their joysticks for the most part. So yeah, they don't like, have to move. Cause that's the thing, right? Is it, is it normally with a normal keyboard, you have to move your finger somewhere else. You move like your finger you to, to the key. Yeah. To get to the key. Now the key is already under your finger. You just got to move your finger right instead of left or instead of forward or whatever. And then on top of that, they have this kind of, so it's weird because like watching people type with this thing is like, they're just sitting there stationary and their hands are never moving and their fingers are just making God, these tiny gonna, little jiggly movements. Honestly, and it's, one words of the few, just, it's one of the few pieces of recent technology I've seen that actually feels f- like it's from the future. It the feels sense. alien. Yeah, it feels very alien. Yeah, because you see somebody ty- like you see somebody typing this thing. Also, you know, in a traditional keyboard, you look at it and it has all the letters and stuff just like on it, you know, ri- written on it. So you're like, oh, if I wanted to like send a, a like a, the letter H to the computer, I just, I just push the one it. that says H. With the character, it's just like a, it's just a couple of pucks with some joysticks on it, right? That's so you look so at it and be like, be like, what do I do with this thing? But then they, they, they took it to another level, which is that they have this cording, uh, 
software layer where basically you, you can pre-program uh, certain simultaneous key presses, which then turns into, a, they call it a chord, but it's basically, if you if you had, for example... Uh, it's a chord like a music chord, you know? It's just like... So it's like, it's like what's a word that's like a, a common word that's maybe like a longer word, you know? I uh, guess... I mean, I, common I guess longer word. There. Like, if you look at, like there. Like a, basically words right. that you misspell a lot because you can easily mm-hmm. swap two of the letters. Right, right. So normally if you're typing with this thing, you you move, you jiggle each joystick to hit keys one at a time, no problem. You just type, 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 type. If you want to make the word there, let's say you, you corded that so that if you hit TR simultaneously, it just spits out the whole word there, okay? Mm-hmm. So you do that with, with a few hundred words because, you know, you've got so many little joysticks that you can get like bajillions of combinations. Yeah, I mean, it's right? combinatorially explosive, right? Yeah. So, just, yeah, yeah. So you're like, okay, you know, for maybe like the 100 most common words um, that either like just in general or the 100 most common words that you tend to sort of fumble, right? You just make a chord for them. So now instead of having to type T-H-E-R-E, you just go T-R at the same time and just there. It's just on your screen. Uh, so their claim is that you can get above 400 words per minute typing with this thing. After a lot of practice. I would After a lot of practice <laughs> and, a lot of, and a lot of programming. But you can also pro, pre-program uh, like code, code blocks and stuff. So if you mm-hmm. find yourself retyping you know, certain like syntactical things in a programming language, you could turn those into chords and then just spit those out as well. Um, so I'm very excited about this thing, but also terrified because I'm pretty confident that I'll be yeah. typing it like yeah, it's one of those words things that's, per minute yeah. for a while. Uh, yeah, it's so cool. Like I almost also bought one. My, so my wife already did. It hasn't arrived yet. Um, but because uh, she looked at it, she was like, I can't not try this. There's, that's not possible, right? And I was looking at it and I was like, I really want to, but I don't know if I'll be able to get over all those those hurdles, you know, of like – that's kind of like I was a Dvorak myself. keyboard, you know. What I mean? yeah. Then I was I was mad at how scared I was of it, and then I was like, <laughs> "Just no. do it then. Uh-huh. I'm going to do this thing." So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we won't. Yeah, we won't go so far as to like advocate that our. It's also very expensive, but I also we won't advocate that our listeners get it because we don't know if this is a good experience. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. But just you should know it, that it exists, and you should go check it out because it is pretty dope. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing we will talk about is some pretty big studio shifts in thinking. But before we do that, I got to ask you guys, do we want to talk about this or do we want to get into yeah. questions? Because we're- No, we got time. To. We could try to. Okay. Yeah. We didn't last time, so now we- now Okay. We so so we did our quarterly review uh, two Mondays ago. So a while, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, by the time this episode comes out. Um, and around the time we started learning about DevOps, we started really thinking about bottlenecks. You know, bottleneck is the place in your- in your production where Where work in progress piles up. Yeah. Work in progress piles up uh, and it creates a lot of waiting because other, you know, people can't, can't keep adding stuff into your, your workflow uh, Mm -hmm. because it's all blocked at the bottleneck and also uh, things downstream of the bottleneck customers, other people who are, you know, rely on that, uh, whatever uh, downstream things also have to be scaled down relative to what the bottleneck. Yeah. So we've always kind of taken it kind of as a given that I'm the bottleneck at the studio. As the game programmer, so many inputs uh, come to me, Um, you know, art, music, design, UI design, game mechanics, bug fixes, um, QA reports. Basically, like at a certain point, everything's got to go into the game because that's, you know, we make games and game programming. Core product. Yeah. And uh, and so – 
So at the time we started learning about all this, our framing of it was how do we protect the bottleneck? How do how do we have reduce people strain, reduce work that's landing on it, and also make it more efficient? So it yeah, which faster. which I think we did a good job of because tons of stuff that I used to be doing, I'm no longer doing. So yeah. um, I used to like write up patch notes. That's all automated. I used to correct a lot of technical art things. Uh, that's no longer a thing. We use Spine now, so Sam does his animations instead of me animating stuff in code, right? Um, yeah, we so, auto-import all the sprites. We do auto-import yeah. all the sounds. And also Fat yeah. Bar, does, who does all of our sound work, does more of the organizational stuff than than they used to. Yep. Yep. So it's so it became more and more the case that um, that my time was spent pro like programming things that that uh, like only only I could program as the game programmer, right? It's important to note that this is partially the, the way in which it's constructed is always going to be related to the tool you're using. So if you oh yeah, using game maker dependent, yeah. So if you're using Unreal or Unity, there's so there's actually more there's more visual tooling in those programs that allow for. Basically, more people who aren't directly programming to touch uh, to touch the game. They have implementation their own implementation doesn't always require the programmer. Basically, yes. But in right. the case of Game Maker, it's very, pretty tightly coupled, uh, at least for the way we do things too. Which yeah, we don't have the room editor. Right, it has been. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. So in our quarterly review this past this past week, we basically said, okay, in an ideal world, where where would the bottleneck be? So we, we've we've sort of like hit the point where we can't really do much more to, you know, quote, protect the bottleneck or to like take things off of my plate um, as a team, right? Uh, and so- Well, and we were seeing that it didn't, because I think it's important to note like why this was so much an important thing to, to visit, right? Which is because for literal years, we've been trying to figure out how to manage that as the problem, right? We're just like, okay, well, this is where the bottleneck is. And, and what that means is that Seth is always operating at capacity, right? So, yeah, any, and the, any the obvious sort of like uh, answer to that is hire more game programmers. Yeah, right. But yeah. we increase throughput, right? Yeah, but that seems like it's always a trap, right? Anytime mm-hmm. a company is like, "Oh yeah, we're hiring like two hundred more engineers to like bring stability to our platform," it's like, well, I mean, you know, you're bringing a, huge, you're bringing a kind of chaos, also. You know, is that yeah, that's a huge management overhead, lots of chaos. You have to do tons of training. You know, um, you might even lose some of your current engineers because they'll, you know, become dissatisfied with how much chaos there is, right? So, like, so adding people to the to the to the process we view as a last resort, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we instead decided let's try to reframe if if the bottleneck was going to be there's always a bottleneck, right? So, where would the ideal place be to have the bottleneck? And and we landed on the answer of somewhere upstream of me. Well, and but in a more like general conceptual that because we think of like a, a network system where like things are feeding into things and then that thing's a bottleneck, right? But the yeah. the problem that gets created though is the waiting. That's yes. the problem, right? And waiting who's waiting for what? Is how long are they waiting? And, and how waiting, many people are waiting? <laughs> right. And waiting comes from work being coupled together. Because and so that so this actually ended up not really being about the bottleneck. It then became about okay, how do we decouple people's work so that people are not waiting, right? So allowing people to move in parallel, um, so that now when people are moving in parallel, then they are their own bottleneck. Because if they are not being blocked by somebody else and are not causing somebody else to like not have too much work, then their peak 
capacity to like do whatever that work is is the limiting factor, and with and that is within their control, right? Well, well, or even at that point, the bottleneck is then the tools that the content creators. Yes. When I say content creator, I mean people making content for the game, not like YouTubers. Yeah. Well, actually, the, that's, but that's the cool thing is that as soon as it's decoupled, it's that actually now everybody is the bottleneck, right? Like everybody is, yeah, for the kind of stuff that they're creating, and so it, like one way to think of it is like. For us specifically, kind of what that means is that we have like the content now is on the one hand only limited by how fast content creators can make stuff, right? But that's now also true of game features that make more room for more kinds of game content or make more tools to satisfy other parts of the processes and other people's interactions with that uh, with that sort of node, you know, and like in the workflow. Yeah. 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 So, so the answer then actually becomes um, for me as the game programmer to reframe my role and basically as uh, I should not be, in general, directly implementing game content. Mm-hmm. Instead, I should be uh, developing game systems and then developing tools to allow our content creators to implement their own content into the game yeah. without having to program, right? And so what that does then is that creates uh, it creates a scalable pipeline, because now, because now if the tool is really good, and if, for example, like, let's say we want to add a new item into Crashlands 2, uh, and Sam is able to do that top to bottom through the, this new tool or whatever, then that means uh, while he's doing that, I can also, if, if I've got a, something that I'm adding to the game, I can do that. Somebody else, if we, if we expand the content creation team, uh, then it doesn't increase the workload on yes. me as the game programmer. And the only the only thing that I need to then work on is just continuing to improve the tools to allow the content creation team to make content even faster, mm-hmm. right? Because previously it was all like, how do we not have the content creation team produce so much stuff that it overwhelms the the, the pipeline, mm-hmm. right? And now we should now we're saying, how do we make the pipeline able to just handle literally anything that we that we throw at it? Right. Well, basically, it's always um, the, the the thing we've always been fighting against is this question of like, how do you actually scale? Because mm-hmm. every way we looked at it under the previous paradigm, there never seemed like it was possible to scale. And by scale, I mean uh, a particular thing. Increase which throughput. Yeah, when you when you add an additional person to the team, that you're actually you're increasing throughput more than uh, like more than just one person necessarily would. It's basically exponentially. Actually, yeah, or even if you don't, being have, being able to like hire somebody with confidence that the increased overhead by virtue of having another person mm-hmm. uh, doesn't just offset the right. additional the administrative cost of yeah. yeah yeah yeah. So this is a, a different way of thinking about my role in the studio, um, and it's been really interesting. It's been super fun. We're working on on creating some some sort of generic um, tooling that is modular and customizable on a per-game basis uh, and even on a per-asset basis. So if we wanted to make a custom particle editor, you know, we should be able to do that. Custom items for a certain game, uh, color picker, sound effects editor, you know, whatever. Um, and, and since it's our own tool sort of built on top of Game Maker, then whatever it is that we need to have a sort of custom editor for we can just you know, build it in this in this tool pretty quickly and pretty easily um, and with all the rules and enforcement that makes it so that somebody working with this system doesn't need to be trained on what's allowed right so and that, that was always kind of a problem with like for example let's say Sam wanted to actually get into the code and edit something in Crashlands 2 
for starters. It's code mixed with data, right? And so he would have to know where to find the data to edit stuff. But then also, it's code. You can just type whatever the hell you want in there, right? Yep, yep. Right. And and so if he if there's supposed to be a number somewhere and instead Sam puts Steve, then the game doesn't handle that, right? And he's going to get an error or something like that. Um, and and now, there's no. And end. now he just has to be a full-on programmer so he can debug this like problem that has been created. Yeah. Right? So instead, if we have this editor layer, which is basically like when Sam wants to go change some stuff, he can just see all the stuff that he can change that's been exposed that way. Uh, and also, he can see what the rules are. It's like, oh yeah, this here's what this thing is. Here's an explanation of it. Here's what the current value is. Here's other like allowable num- numerical ranges or something. And he can change that thing and then just pop into the game and see his change. No need yeah, to. I think importantly, there's you know, there's, yeah. I think that's also the big one is that you know there are. You know, we mentioned at the top of this question the, the point about um, like Unity, Unreal, other other game systems that do actually have a lot of visual editors or even just editing tools built in to the software, extensible UIs and that sort of thing, which is yeah. awesome. And, uh, you know, if you're thinking about getting started uh, or basically building a scalable team, that's actually a huge thing to think about. Um, but I think one of the other benefits of this, because we've used Unity before um, with essentially the editors that you could basically pop out uh, of there, the programmers can essentially put in uh, to be able to allow designers and stuff to modify things on the fly, whatever else. But there's a bunch of other technical things that come with it. Um, Mm-hmm. That make it actually still. It's one of those. It's you can, which is better than Game Maker, where you can't. Yes, right? but it's still very clunky and hard, which is then still not good. And you're yeah. still directly manipulating the the game project, yeah. like That's the code the of the. Yeah. yeah, and so so we're we're trying to think about this as separating out the content of the game as a as a layer of data with editable rules and lots of cool editors to customize and add and and tweak those things um, where, where then the, the game is, is it's an engine, right. That eats all that data, add some, add some extra like bells and whistles to it. Yeah, um, it knows what to, to actually make it, it, to make it usable as game content. Um, and then actually like turns it into, into stuff. Right. So separating those things is very interesting and very challenging. Uh, but we're about a week and a half into working on this editor tool. We're currently calling it the fabricator. Because, you know, it's just a good name. Yeah. Uh, but it's coming along. Very excited about it. Um, and I yeah, think, I think and it's going to be very cool. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about what this thing is going to look like. Because the other thing that we're doing is we're trying to say, we're trying to focus on portability, right? Which is a lesson we learned from actually just selling games in the first place, which is that if you're like locked to Steam, that's your only platform. Then if Steam's like, oh, we don't want to show your game. Okay, well, now let's get your toast, right? Uh, and it's kind of the same idea here, which is... If we if we create these systems to like you know manipulate stuff right, and then at some point we're like, oh fuck, it's going to be really hard for us to make say a text editor inside of Game Maker, right? Well, that, that's fine because we used a generic system that is portable because it's just data. It's a well described data structure. It's a, and we used a kind of data that almost any program in the universe can interpret. And so now all of a sudden we can say, okay, well let's just make that over here instead in this other mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah, and so so by by taking that approach, we actually enable because I was as we were as we were as we've been working on this, I've been getting more and more excited because there's a whole bunch of problems that I've been having with the web stuff unrelated to games, just like running the web tech to make it so that like people can log in and do stuff, right? And things like main, and maintaining our help pages, which currently like I have to do through code, right? Mm-hmm. Like go, it's the same problem, and realizing 
This is the same problem. Just literally, it's the same problem, right? So the same problem is you need stuff to be there, but yeah. there's rules about that stuff. Like yeah. that's just that's just the, that's the, the, the core problem. Yeah. And sometimes the rules are really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've got an easy editor that yeah. makes it so that you don't have to learn the rules, the editor just lets you do stuff or not, depending on what yeah. the rules it just are. Tells tells you're it wrong tells you if you're wrong. Tells you if you're wrong. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of the same as like if you go to if you go to like fill in your your information on a website, right? And you it's like put your email address. You put in your email address, and it knows that it's not a valid email address, mm-hmm. right? And it'll it'll tell you that, right? So it's exactly that same kind of thing, but just like for any more more generic data. for any kind of thing that you want to do. So if we say, hey, I want a new particle system uh, in in our game, right? Okay, well, what's a particle system? It's just a bunch of numbers. Mm-hmm. Well. And then they're all optional and they have like a huge range of possible values and whatever. Um, and so right now I have to program all those numbers using functions and whatever, but I could just turn that into a bunch of rules and then Sam could just pop open and be like, oh, a new particle system, boop. And then like, it'll just tell him here are all the things that you can do and he can just type it in and then boom, there's a new mm-hmm. particle system. So yeah, same deal so if like, you know, Jordan's doing some QA thing and, and an, an issue comes in. He's like, oh, I've seen this issue twice now. And so he's like, but it's something we can't fix or we just can't done with the resources currently. Uh, let me go write up a help thing for this, right? And he can just go can to the place that. where all of the things are, right? <laughs> it's like, it'd be like, oh, here's the help one. And then, oh, make a new one and then fill it out because it tells you what to put in there. And then it like tells him if he did it fine, right? And then now all of a sudden the system behind the scenes, right? It's just like, oh, cool. Another thing. I know how to interpret this because- I was designed yeah. to interpret this, right? Yeah. So to kind of to kind of summarize, then the reframing, then it's it's that up until now, our programmers have both uh, been responsible for creating tools uh, and software, but also for implementing uh, content stuff, in that. Part. Right. So, like Adam's talking about help pages. Help pages in our website are literally just like written out it's content as like as documents in the in the code base of the website, right? Um, they don't have to be. We could just make an editor for those, right? And so so now it's, it's shifting our perspective into saying that our, as programmers, our job is to make editors and to make tools to allow people to put content into things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so, and then it's basically, yeah, we create editors and we design data structures. And then the stuff that we get to focus on is basically f- that. How the data and structures interpreters interact. Yeah, interpreters, we're basically, yeah. right. We create interpreters yeah. that then say like, oh, cool. With this data, I can now accomplish all these really cool tasks, right? What I'm excited yeah. about is that this it feels like another one of those, because uh, like I think we're where we've been getting to is at local maxima point of like taking yeah. all the concepts and really applying them to how we were doing things. And this does feel like a potential shift into a different a different sort of hill, you know, a different sort mm-hmm. of a potential maximum that we can hit. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Thanks. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah, it is. And this this is the... This is the Andon cord in action that we hear about in DevOps. That like I think it was a Toyota invented this idea, which is like mm-hmm. something is wrong on the assembly line. Uh, All hands. Er- everybody's got a little cord they can pull and be like, okay, we need to stop this thing and rethink whatever's causing this problem, right? Uh, so that's where we're at. It's really interesting. We'll have, we'll have more to say about it, I think, in the uh, coming weeks as we you know get deeper into this process, but. Uh, very excited. Well, that's and that's all the time we have for this week. So, uh, sorry we didn't get into any questions. We'll we'll have to kind of double down next week. I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go uh, ask your questions. Go do it. Yes, we'll do a, a big old question geddon next week. 
Uh, I'd like, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.